welcome to Horror Through Her Eyes. You've got the Taminator, an amateur destroyer, ready to explore the twist world of horror and prove that girls enjoy horror just as much as the guys do. Tonight, we will be reviewing All About Evil, the debut film from legendary drag artist Peaches Christ from 2010. And this is Miss Jessica's pick. How are you doing tonight, Jessica? Hi. I'm doing all right. I'm excited to talk about this one, so (laughs) I'm feeling good. How are you doing? Um, Yeah, I'm good. I finished the movie and took a nap, which doesn't usually work for me, but it actually did today, so I'm all refreshed and ready to go. Heck yeah. I'm all about the the power nap. It's my jam. (laughs) All right. Well, awesome. So before we start getting into the movie and all of that, uh, why don't you take us through our haunting headlines? business is about our podcast we want more ratings and reviews please help us out by reviewing the podcast especially on the apple podcast app in return we are going to randomly pick a reviewer to pick a movie for us to review as well as come on the podcast and be a guest on the show i'm so excited yeah that second part is optional if you are not comfortable with coming on the podcast but we're pretty down to earth and chill here so we're hoping that you will definitely we are uh, we're looking to hit five reviews, so your odds of winning will be pretty damn good. <laughs> and, you know, maybe if this goes well, maybe we'll do it another time. Um, our first ever review was left by Grave Brewer Brazelli of Monsters and the Mosh Pit fame on 11-26-23, where he wrote, <clears throat> This is an amazing show with two strong hosts. The women on this show are true horror fans, and their insights from a female point of view on the genre is tr- truly refreshing. This isn't a man-bashing show. Get that point right now. This is just an opposing look at a genre that we rarely get to hear unaltered or un- or restrained. I love that Jessica and Tammy feel comfortable talking with each other. You can feel their passion for the genre, but also appreciate their points of view, even if they may differ from your own. Five stars for sure. Oh, my gosh. That is so <laughs> sweet. I know. I'm sorry, Greg, that we didn't notice um, until now that we're, like, asking for reviews. Um, it's kind of, like, tricky trying to figure out where to find reviews on stuff, and you can't review podcasts on all the different podcast apps, so that's really annoying. Um, I'm not even sure if you can leave actual reviews on Spotify. I know you can leave ratings, um, but I don't see the ability to leave reviews. And I use um, Overcast, and you can't leave reviews on there, so whenever I actually want to review a podcast, I have to like re-download my Apple Podcasts app and go and leave reviews. Oh, yeah. It's always frustrating. And I'm <clears throat> trying to remember the logistics. Like you can do it on your phone, but you can't do it online or like on a, you know, computer. And it's really weird and annoying. And iTunes, I think, is like technically like an Apple store where you can access like movies and Apple Podcasts. And all these different things. So I'm not sure how people leave reviews on iTunes. I have to figure that out because we did get a message from Dave Dr. Shock Becker that he left us a review. Oh my god, I love him. What? I know. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm fangirling right now. Me too. I'm so sorry. I oh my god. It. I screenshotted it and I was gonna send it to you and I was like, no, I'm gonna surprise her. Oh 
you totally did. Like, he is, oh, I mean. Legend. He was one of the very first podcasters I've, I ever listened to. Ever. Yeah. And he reminds me, he was like Vin to me before I knew about Vin. That's who he kind of reminds me of. So knowledgeable and well-spoken. Yeah. So, Oh my gosh. His extensive knowledge is crazy. I don't know where he stores all of it, but I don't either. He's always pulling out random facts and it's always amazing. And Don and Ellie said he was leaving us a review too. And I also can't find that. So I'm just going to have to do more digging to figure out how to look at reviews. Oh. Well, we promise we'll figure it out. Yeah, should, we should will figure it like, out. Should people, like, message us, DM us something if they leave us a review so we know to look for it in case it's a podcasting app we don't use? I mean, that would be helpful for yeah. sure if you guys want to do that. But like I said, Dave and Dawn did do that, and I haven't been able to find their reviews yet. So, <laughs> And maybe it's even a thing, like, um, it might be a thing, too, where it doesn't post right away. It might take a day for it to, like, sync up. I don't know. So maybe they'll pop up tomorrow. But I'm going to continue looking uh, when we're done recording and see if I can figure it out. Because I just tried really quick before we hopped on here. So, but yes, please, ratings and reviews, people. Almost as exciting as Dave Dr. Schockbecker is the long-awaited adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot from director Gary Dauberman of Annabelle Comes Home fame, which is still without a release date here in 24, 2024. And Stephen King has once more taken to Twitter this week to ask the big question, what's the deal? Seriously, what's the deal? Originally set for theatrical release on September 9th, 2022, the new Stephen King adaptation was recently bumped to April 21st, 2023, before getting ejected from the theatrical slate altogether. As of now, Salem's Lot still has no release date. King tweets tonight, between you and me, Twitter, I've seen the new Salem's Lot and it's quite good. Old school horror making or horror filmmaking, slow build, big payoff. Not sure why WB is holding it back. Not like it's embarrassing or anything. Who knows? I just write the fucking things. The concern from horror fans is that Dalberman Salem's lot will be trashed completely by Warner Brothers. A nasty money saving tactic the studio has unfortunately been brace- embracing in the past several months. That being said, we have no reason to think that's the case at this time. Last we heard, it's more likely the film will eventually debut on the Max streaming service. Stay tuned for more on the upcoming Salem's Lot remake. And that's from Bloody Disgusting. So I will stay tuned. Yeah. I hate that when they try to, like, trash their own stuff that they're producing. You know what I mean? To, like, make them, they think it's going to make them look better, but it just makes them look like jerks. Especially when you have freaking Stephen King tweeting about it. That is reaching millions of people. Plus, it's been getting enough buzz and people bitching about it in the horror community that, like, I I just, I can't even imagine what their thinking is. Yeah. Maybe they have some wise plan we don't know about, but... Somehow I doubt it. Some things hiding in the closet and an exclusive new clip for Shudder's upcoming horror thriller, History of Evil. Look for History of Evil exclusively on Shudder this Friday, February 23rd, 2024. After taking refuge in a safe house with an evil with an evil house, that doesn't mean things start getting sinister. What's that noise coming from the closet? History of Evil is set in the near future. War and corruption have plagued America and turned it into a theocratic police state. 
I mean, isn't it kind of already like that? Against the oppression, ordinary citizens have formed a group called the Resistance. One such member, Ella Gray Dyer, breaks out of political prison and reunites with her husband, Ron, and daughter, Daria. On the run from the militia, the family takes shelter in a remote safe house. But their journey is far from over as the house's dark past begins to eat away at Ron, and his earnest desire to keep his family safe is overtaken by something much more sinister. Almost sounds Amityville horror-ish a little bit. I just put this in because I thought it was like great news and really interesting. The fourth season of the anthology series True Detective Night Country has been a massive success for HBO and the Max streaming service, recently hitting an all-time ratings high for the entire series. In other words, it's the most watched season of True Detective to date, and this past Sunday night's finale ended Night Country on another ratings high. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the finale of True Detective Night Country drew the season's largest first night audience, bringing in 3.2 million cross-platform viewers. Night Country has averaged 12.7 million total viewers per episode, which again makes it the most watched season of True Detective in the anthology's fourth season history. And I'm just mentioning that because if you haven't watched this by now, you really, really need to. Yeah. Um, Did you know, I didn't even notice until last night that the creator for this season is the same lady who wrote and directed Tigers Are Not Afraid. No. Mm -mm. Which I think is totally makes sense. Um, and that's awesome. So, uh, if you guys didn't know that, that lady made Tigers Are Not Afraid, which was like everybody's favorite movie that year. So definitely, uh, it was just, yeah, I mean, it, it was just like masterful storytelling and the, I mean, that would have looked great on a big screen, you know, it just mm-hmm. looked so good and yeah, it was really good. Um, described as a high concept horror film, the upcoming Rosario, filmed by Philippe Vargas in his feature directorial debut from a screenplay by Alan Treza of We Summon the Darkness and Joe Dante's Bearing the X, stars Emerald Tubia as Rosario, a successful stockbroker on Wall Street who is forced to spend the night with the body of her estranged grandmother, Griselda, who has abruptly died. While waiting for the ambulance and her father, played by Jose Zuniga, to arrive, a heavy snowstorm locks her inside Griselda's apartment. Surrounded by unfriendly neighbors, including the watchful Joe, played by David um, Dastmalchian, as the night endlessly stretches on, twisted and menacing supernatural forces that have possessed Griselda's corpse begin to an- begin their assault on Rosario. Now the target of a deadly family curse that spans generations, Rosario mo- must battle everything she knows about her past to save herself and her soul in a desperate attempt to break the evil. Fresh, uh, fresh off recent releases, including Deep Fear on Netflix and No Way Up on VOD, another shark attack horror movie is headed our way here in 2024. It's Yay. titled, yeah, yeah, yeah. this one sounds good too. It's titled Something in the Water. In the upcoming aquatic horror movie from Studio Canal, an idyllic destination wedding turns into the battle into a battle for survival. The film follows Meg, who tentatively attends the wedding of an old friend Lizzie in the Caribbean along with fellow pals Cam and Ruth, plus her former partner Kayla who she parted ways with after both survived a deeply traumatic event. Naturally, the wedding party is invaded by hungry sharks and all hell breaks loose. So I can't. <laughs> that sounds fun. Not I wonder how like that. campy they're going to make it. Very. I hope very. <laughs> uh, and that's it for haunting headlines. Nice. Well, I think I'll take us into our Fright Bites.
So we've already mentioned this over on the horror cast, but we both saw Lisa Frankenstein. And so I just wanted to bring it up briefly just to tell people that I think it's worth going and seeing it in the theater, although it's very stylized. And I can see a lot of people not liking the stylization, mostly of the writing, not of the directing or the cinematography. Like those are both amazing. But it is uh, written by Diablo Cody, who did Juno, you know, so it's and Jennifer's body. So it's that kind of writing. But I think that she doesn't like the dialogue that she wrote isn't as cringy as either of those other two movies. You know, it seems like she toned it down a little, which I'm grateful for. But um, but I think that it was really fun um, and that the soundtrack was really awesome. So it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not for everybody, but I think it's a good one to go and support. Well, what did you want to add about Lisa Frankenstein? Um, I didn't like it as much as you. I do agree, though, with um, most of what you're saying. I don't see I see a lot more people not liking it than liking it. Um, like, I'm not mad I went to see it in the theater or anything like that. It just just didn't quite get there for me. But it definitely had elements that I liked. We both mentioned that we really liked the uh, animation parts. So mm-hmm. that part was really cool. And of course, you know, I was like a, her when I was a teenager. So I could appreciate that part. And the um, the song choices they use are, it's just like, it's my childhood, my teenageness, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. that was really fun for me. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Because we get, the, everyone's doing the 80s lately, right? Like everyone wants to go back to the 80s. That's the thing that's hot for whatever reason. And I'm always like, but I like goth 80s, you know what I mean? (laughs) And they do a lot more like poppy 80s. And so they kind of get into some of the more like stuff that I enjoyed about the 80s in this. So that was probably another reason I liked it so much. Yeah, to me, it felt a little bit like just because, you know, I lived it and I was like, you know, punk, whatever back then. Mm -hmm. This felt like they went to like Spirit Halloween and got all the decorations and the outfits like I know. Just, I feel it, like it always feels that way whenever yeah. they do. I'm trying to think. I feel like we've seen one or two things where they did the 80s okay. But I thought Totally part, Killer did. I didn't think they were over the overly like. It wasn't as, yeah, crazy. it wasn't as bad as a lot of other properties and stuff that have been coming out lately. But you're right. It, that They usually tend to go like way overboard with the 80s for whatever reason. Um I don't know. It, it's more like what people think the 80s were like rather than like what the 80s were like. Yeah, 100%. The 80s yeah. were just a lot more grungy than this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I did also put on here that I watched True Detective Night Country. I came to it a little late um, and then binged all of it in like a day or two. Um, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I thought it was funny because for the most part, when people have been bringing it up, it's to talk about how it reminds them of the thing so much and the parallels between the thing and this. And I get like the setting and the research center and stuff. I guess those things are reminiscent. But I was so focused in on like the the Native American women. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And just like. The whole through line having to do with that and all of those characters and and all the turmoil and trauma and everything that goes hand in hand with it. 
Um, so I really, I didn't think of it as like a, I, of course there's like homages to the thing, you know what I mean? That's fine. And that's cool. And that's fun. But yeah, I thought it was going to be like one of those things where it's so close that it's kind of ripping it off or something just because everybody kept bringing that up. And I was like, Oh, I mean, yeah, it's in Alaska and snowy and there's a research (laughs) party, but that's about it. Um, I, yeah, I didn't yeah. feel that. I think after every, we all saw the first episode, I can totally see that. Ooh, this kind of feels like the thing. And, you know, kind of like how the bodies looked at the end of the episode. But it definitely goes in a totally different direction after that. And I just loved, um, it's, I think it's Kelly Reese who plays Evangeline Navarro. And I just actually loved all of the Native women. I thought they were so fascinating. That's that. It's just a group of people I feel like I don't know much about. I feel like a lot of people don't know much about. And they touched a little bit on, like, their traditions, and they did include some of their music. And I just loved all of that. But I would definitely like to see more things take place in this world. Yeah. Yeah, I totally bought in. You know, the one thing I didn't like, though, that since you brought up the the native music, I really hated all of the other music. Oh, my God. I fast forwarded that. I, I don't like Billie Eilish. OK, I, I don't know if everybody does, but I cannot stand her. And the main music is Billie Eilish, right? Yeah. For the like, opening. Yeah, I like them. I don't even like I would get my remote ready because I like didn't even want to hear one note of the song. But then all of, I agree, like it's like that kind of music is what they picked for like the whole not necessarily her. And maybe I'm just not hip on today's modern music. But mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know even if that's what you would call that. But the, all of the rest of the music they use besides of like the indigenous music mm-hmm. sucked. I thought. Yeah, it was so weird. Like none of it really fit. Not there was at a lot all. of like covers, and I was like, "Those yeah, really weird ones too." Just, like who was in charge of picking the music? Yeah. They did a terrible job. I actually, I don't hate Billie Eilish, but that song in particular has been used for, like, 50 other things already. And what does it have to do with this? It, nothing. Absolutely nothing. No. I, did, I did, like, I did, like, listen to it one or two times with my closed captions on to see if I could figure out, like, if the words or something, you know, has something to do with the show. And I couldn't yeah. tie it in, and I just was like, wow. Yeah. No. So that was, like, the only bad uh, point point off for me when I, it was just something that really stood out to me throughout the series. I was like, these are terrible song selections. <laughs> yes. Well, I felt the same exact way. So, but yeah, Navarro was my favorite. That actor was so good. She totally blew me away. Um, and of course, Jodie Foster was really, really good. Um, everybody was so good. Yeah. I just loved it and it looked great and cold oh. and, even the policeman's son, I don't know who he is, but just that whole dynamic between, yeah, I can't think about, oh my god, it was just so like there was so many gut punches in this. It was just like, yeah. oh god. And I mean, I I have twenty minutes of the finale left, so I don't even know how it totally ends right now. But oh my god, I can't. You have to like text me when you're done. Okay. <laughs> I have a feeling that you're going to really love the ending. Oh, my God. I can't wait. I like the ending a lot. I was down. Um, But, yeah, so those are those are my two fright bites. (laughs) How about you, Tammy? Um, The only thing I can add was I did see Out of the Darkness in the theater and pretty much hated it. And if you listened, I don't know if you heard me on Horrorcast, but it was just like 
I think this is one of those situations where they put a trailer out that looks like it's going to be a horror movie because they know that horror movie people will, horror fans will go to the movies to see just about anything. And then you get there and it has nothing to do with horror. So, I mean, but I mean, that's not my fault because they made it look like I was getting a predator movie and I did not. No, there was no beastie in there. And then um, you can 100% skip the newest movie on Shudder called Skeletons in the Closet. Mark and I both <laughs> said it was a Lifetime movie. Uh, and I said that was like an insult to Lifetime movies because it's just so bad. And, like, you're going to see the cast and be like, oh, wow, this is going to be great. And it's just, it's cringingly, cringingly horrible. So, again, Shudder fails. Hard avoid. <laughs> Hard avoid. <clears throat> yeah, it's funny because I know we were talking about, you know, the 2023 releases. And we actually did end up having quite a few Shutter releases on our list altogether. But we're still pretty disappointed overall. With well, I like, think it just, there was just also a lack of nothing else this past year. So I think stuff that's true. Like we said that got a pass that wouldn't even have necessarily made our list in previous years. You know, yeah. So. I hope they come back. Make a comeback, Shudder, please. We need you, Shudder. I'll always have to keep Shudder anyways, because Dragula. (laughs) (laughs) All right, um, on to Echoes from the Abyss. Trawick says, I just listened to the episode. I guess no women commented on the original post for it, but I do love this movie. Yay. Oh, yay. I'm a sucker <laughs> for anthologies anyway, and this one is, and this is one of the better ones. I really enjoy when you have stories that actually link together. Me too. I had hoped to rewatch this before the podcast, but it's not streaming for free. I should honestly just buy it. So it's been a few years. I know I liked all the segments. There's usually one or two in an anthology that don't work for me, but this movie is solid throughout. Agree. I do think the first and last ones are the best, or at least they really work for me. Each segment is pretty unsettling in their own ways. I've always thought of this movie as purgatory, but it's an interesting thought that maybe they aren't dead. I'll have to look at it through those eyes next time. Oh, and the last time I watched this, I hadn't seen Carnival of Souls, so I didn't catch it. That's a perfect movie to be playing in the background, though. Yay. Uh, Yay. (laughs) Also, I just wanted to add, because I think in our show notes and everything, I put that you could watch it on Shudder. And I didn't realize you can only watch it on Shudder, like, if you do that thing where you get the AMC Plus. Yeah, that's what I have. Package through Prime or whatever. So then you can watch it for free. I'm pretty sure I rented it and then just, like, forgot (laughs) that I spent money. It's so weird because I got the AMC Plus thinking so that I thought Shudder was included. And when I watch this, it when you go on that app, it doesn't it, – it's under the Shudder umbrella. It's not like you're watching it on AMC Plus. So mm-hmm. I don't know why the Shudder is any different on the AMC Plus app, but apparently it is. I thought it was just like all the Shudder stuff. Right. You know, just under that, but I, apparently not, so – so weird. Ugh. That <clears throat> confuses me. <laughs> so many streaming services now. Yeah. Um, 
and Greg Buzzelli. I did watch Southbound last night. Good anthology with some dark theory. Loved yours and Tammy's talk about it. Well, thank you. Yay. And I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering correctly, he hadn't seen it before. And then we posted that we were going to review it. And I was like, dude, yeah. watch it. So he dude, did. Yay. That makes me so happy. Yes, me too. That's Nicole too. She watched Carnival of Souls because we were reviewing it. So it's like we're doing our doing the Lord's work. I <laughs> 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 just I love when I can introduce something so good into someone's life. You know, it just makes me happy. You're right. It is the Lord's work for sure. Um, all right, and now to get on to Jessica, well, Abyss notes about Jessica's pick, All About Evil. We'll start again with Nicole Trawick. I have to admit, I love this campy movie. It's so off the wall with over-the-top acting and lots of humor. Also has good kills, but what do you expect from a movie written and directed by Peaches Christ, who I absolutely adore? Also, Natasha Leon, Mink Stoll, and Cassandra Peterson were all amazing in it. You can tell they just had so much fun with it, which makes it a joy to watch. And Greg Pizzelli again said, never even heard of it. Not sure, but not sure how, but there you have it. I'll go sulk in the shadows and wallow in my unknowing ignorance. Well, I was the same (laughs) as you, Greg, until I got this assignment. So don't feel bad about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like some huge popular movie. Um, And I'll actually, I'll talk about a little bit later how I even found out about it. So, Greg, you don't have to worry about it. And he knows who Peaches Christ is and stuff, and he knows that Peaches Christ has a movie. He just didn't know that this was that movie. So you're cool, dude. No one's stealing your horror card. Um, you can steal mine because I didn't. I didn't even know that. So there you go. <laughs> and that'll do it for our Echoes from the Abyss. Take it away, All Jessica. Right. Yes, I will. Daddy loved this movie theater. He believed in this place and in me. Your father wanted you to be an actress. This theater can work. I'll see to it personally. It's like Daddy always said. The show must go on. Fuck you, mother! Start the movie! I am a filmmaker. In all of history, in all the annals of horror, there's never been a great female horror filmmaker. Don't you see how important that is? I am the Scarlet Leopard, and you called me a whore. No, no, I never said you were a whore. I said you were She's murdering her actors. By grinding out weekly gore films that she writes, directs, and stars in. Satisfying a rather large number of fans' unquenchable thirst for violence. Deborah Tunis's films are shocking. You're getting this in close-up, right? And fans say they're as real as it gets. Is that somebody screaming? Uh, we're making a new film. The cameras are rolling! The Welcome to another fantastically frightening Friday night at the Victoria Theatre. Without further ado... And do you know where the, uh, ladies' room is? Miss Deborah Denise! Enjoy the show! 
So, everybody, if you haven't noticed by now, our podcast is a spoiler-filled podcast. So filled. this is your warning. 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 Spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. We're going to be spoiling this because we do very in-depth reviews over here. Um, and so, yes, we will be reviewing All About Evil, which came out in 2010. I think it actually didn't come out, like, to the general public until, like, 2014 or something. So it was quite a big gap, but it was, you know, technically came out in 2010. And this is a comedy horror full-length film directorial debut for Joshua Grinnell, also known as Peaches Christ. Um, and this is unrated, runs at one hour and 38 minutes. And Grinnell is also the writer and stars in the film alongside Natasha Leone as Debbie, a.k.a. Deborah. Uh, and, of course, she's in all kinds of stuff, but I put down, but I'm a cheerleader because I love it. Russian Doll was pretty big a few years ago. And the first thing I ever saw her in was actually Slums of Beverly Hills. That was a movie that my mom and I watched all the time. So that was my introduction to her. I um, loved her in Orange is the New Black, too. She's so good yes. in there. I didn't like that entire series, but the first couple of seasons were pretty good. And she was definitely awesome. Yeah. I always love her. Uh, also, Jack Donner is Mr. Twiggs, and he was Romulan subcommander Tall in the original Star Trek, and he's done tons of movies and shows. Um, Mink Stoll played the librarian Evelyn, and she's part of the <laughs> – yes, cheers on her. Um, she's the librarian, and she was part of the original Motley crew of cast players and underground shockmaster John Waters' bare-bones cult perversions during the late 60s and early 70s. So that's where a lot of people might know her from. Uh, Julie Caitlin Brown was Tammy Tennis, uh, who was the jerk stepmom. I assume she was a stepmom. I couldn't figure out if she was her mom or her stepmom, but I'm assuming based on their relationship, oh, it's probably I, her stepmom. Yeah, I guess I just assumed it was too. It had that. They had that kind of vibe. So yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I'm going with. Uh, she did a lot of TV, and she also did some Star Trek, and um, she did stuff like All My Children. Was the majority of her work? It looked like. Cassandra Peterson as Linda Thompson, who is Elvira, of course. Uh, Thomas Decker was Stephen Thompson, and he played in Village of the Damned, and he was also in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake that came out in 2010, and he's done some Star Trek, too. There's this <laughs> weird through line where, like, everybody has done some Star Trek in this cast, and I don't know if any of that has to do with anything or if that's one of those shows that everybody's been on and I'm not aware. Because I know there's a bunch of different generations and stuff. Right. So, so I'm not sure. Is it, like, um, Law & Order? Like, everybody's been on it at some point? I don't know. Or did, like, one person from here got hired as, like, oh, I know some good people who would be good for this and good for this? Or, yeah. you know, I don't I don't know. There's got to right. be something there. I, I could see that, though, uh, that that's probably, you know, there's so many extras probably used and people coming and going on those different Star Treks. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Jade Ramsey was Vita and Nikita Ramsey was Vera. Um, so they're sisters in real life. I don't think they were quite twins. I, was, I didn't look it up, but looking at when I was watching the movie, they seem to look very similar, but not 
exact. Well, but maybe they're just not um, identical that twins. Paternal, uh, is that paternal, right? The paternal twins don't look exactly so. alike or fraternal. It's one or the other. I mean, they could be, but they could also just be sisters. So. Yeah, but yes, they are actually related. Uh, Noah Segan was Adrian, who I just referred to as the drug addict throughout my notes because I never heard them say his name, but they must have at some point. Um, but he was recently in Blood Relatives. And, I, you know, when I was watching, I'm like, man, that guy looks so familiar. So he was in Blood Relatives, a vampire movie from a year or two ago. And he's also in Knives Out and Glass Onion and some other things, of course. Um, and then one of the main producers was Darren Stein. Uh, he's the writer and director of Jawbreaker, an old favorite of mine. Yeah, and cool. yes, he's a great friend to Peaches, and he's no stranger to Shudder himself um, because he's appeared on Dragula as a special guest, I think, in every single season. And he's one of those people that pops up in all the all these people pop up in all the Shudder things. You know what I mean? So they've really um, wormed their way into becoming like big stars on Shudder, which I love. Um, I'm sure we could thank Dragula for that. <laughs> So, All About Evil follows a mousy librarian who inherits her father's beloved but failing old movie house. In order to save the family business, she discovers her inner serial killer and a legion of rabid gore fans when she starts churning out a series of grisly shorts. What her fans don't realize yet is that the murders in the movies are all too real. <laughs> all right. So, we open with a family visiting the Victoria Theater in 1984, where they're going to see The Wizard of Oz. In the lobby of the theater is a man talking to a little girl named Debbie, who is dressed like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And the man is telling Debbie that she has star quality, unlike the other kids. Her mother um, appears dressed as the Wicked Witch of the East and smoking a cigarette. <laughs> She's about to bail when the man who turns out to be Debbie, uh, Debbie's father asks, you're not going to say to see, you're not going to stay to see Debbie's performance? To which the witch replies, you're right. This I gotta see. So right away, we're getting some good camp <laughs> with, uh, oh, Miss, yeah. with Miss Tennis. <laughs> Inside the theater itself, Debbie's dad um, introduces this matinee that they're running and then he goes and he sits at the piano and Debbie's mother tells her that she better turn it out because her dad's really depending on her. The father um, makes a speech and then um, he says this is like a cool event for the kids and they want to do it again in the future. He seems very passionate. Um, he's very excited about this theater and doing these kinds of events. So it's really endearing. Um and when he introduces Debbie by her full name, which is uh, Debbie Tennis, a boy calls out, it's Debbie Penis, <laughs> because, of course, her last name is close enough to penis. And that's how the cookie crumbles, no matter what generation you're from. Yeah. Yep. Debbie begins to sing poorly and pees herself out of fear. Her mother laughs, still smoking. And when the pee touches the cord to the microphone uh, and she goes to grab the mic for the end of the song, she's electrocuted. Her father grabs her, and we see some strands of her hair turn gray. And then the opening credits roll over a bunch of actual awesome old pulpy movie posters, such as Night of the Living Dead, Carnival of Souls, and etc. I actually, that so much. Love yeah, it. it was so fun. I I wanted to actually look up all the posters because I didn't even know what they were. You know, it was just like too cool and old for me to know. But 
Uh, <clears throat> it was really fun, fun opening sequence. Yeah. So what do you think of this opening? I mean, I knew right away just after this that I was in for our, like what felt like was going to be a Jonathan Waters movie. That's like, mm-hmm. that's what I felt like I was going because I literally knew nothing about this other than you thought it was great and that you thought I might think it was a little bit weird. But just from that. I was like, yep, I think I might have a grip of what I'm getting into here. So, yeah. Yes. Good. (laughs) That always helps. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. In the next scene, Debbie, who's played by Natasha Leone, is grown up and now a librarian. She speaks with a woman who's a colleague outside of the library they work at, and this is Ming Stoll, um, who tells her that she doesn't need to keep taking care of the Victoria Theater and, um, and inherit her father's debts now that he's gone, and says those horror films that they play aren't real movies anyway. Debbie, in very overdramatic fashion, cries and tearfully says that her father put everything into the Victoria Theater, and it's like he always said, the show must go on. Debbie clearly feels guilt over becoming a librarian instead of a star like uh, she believed her father wanted. She may have disappointed him in life, but she wants to make him proud in death. <laughs> and she seems like she's always, she's got that flourish to her voice where she, she's always acting, you know, like yes. everything is, she's delivering a line every time she talks. So Exactly. Which I love because we're in this kind of a movie where it fits, you know, oh, I yeah. mean, if someone was doing that in a movie and it's supposed to be taken seriously, it would be annoying. Um, but I really loved her in this. Yes. And I have some more tidbits about that for you later. Oh, all right. <laughs> Debbie goes to the Victoria, where an old man appears out front and helps her find the right key to unlock the front door. The old man is a projectionist, and he tells Debbie that he's at her service in response to her telling him that she'll need a lot of help now that Daddy's gone. His name is Mr. Twiggs, and as he turns on all of the theater lights, we see the sign outside light up to read, One Night Only, Blood Feast. Inside the theater, Debbie stands at the concession stand reading when a young man named Stephen enters. Debbie greets him and asks the usual, to which he replies yes. It's clear that Debbie has a crush on Stephen. Actually, I wanted to ask, is that clear? It seems like she kind of has a crush on Stephen, right? Because she kind of gets, like, excited every time he comes. Yes, but, I mean, it, that dynamic gets flipped pretty quickly. But I, it's almost like... So it seemed like she's kind of like trying to be like a stereotypical librarian, like not really like a super sexual creature. Like she's like in, you know, not outgoing, real dowdy looking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we like him coming in is the first time we see her kind of like light up a little, maybe stand a little straight, you know, like have right. a little, like you can tell he brings something out of her. So yeah, plus now, he's cute. Is, yes, and apparently gay, which I didn't know, but I watched some interviews. Um, you know, about him playing in this. And he was like, well, he's honestly clearly gay when you hear him talk <laughs> outside of oh. acting. But he was like, yeah, when I got this script, I was so excited. It has everything I love, queerness, weirdness, you know, and went on. Well, I did not pick up on that at all. I kind of wondered, like, because you, I thought that at first that long, dark-haired girl, long-haired, dark, long, dark-haired girl was his girlfriend. Then it seems like he's kind of got like a crush on the popular girl. So, oh yeah, I don't mean in this movie. I mean like in real life, he's gay. Oh, oh, okay. Because I was like, what? No, I. 
<laughs> no, no, not gay in the movie. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Remember, because his mom even tries to kind of hint, like, if you're gay, you can talk to me. And he's oh, like, that's oh, right. Gay. Yeah. Um, no, but the thing that I thought was weird about this <laughs> was that, I mean, looking at him and Natasha Leone at this point in time, they don't look like they're different in age very much. But in the story, he's a high schooler and she's supposed to be like in her 30s or something. Yes, which I did pick up on that and thought it was a little like a little weird if she has a crush on him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not weird if he has a crush on her, but weird if she has a crush on him. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we, she, as you said, she kind of lights up when he comes in. And so that's why I wrote, I think it's clear that she has a crush on him. Uh, and he says that without her father, he wouldn't know half of his favorite horror movies. And he says that he's sorry about her dad's passing. Steven goes in to watch Blood Feast and Mr. Twiggs tells Debbie that he needs to go out to get mouthwash. <laughs> I think that's what he said he needed to go out and yes. get rebound it. Yes. And I'm like, that's random. Okay. Yep, I know. <laughs> so Debbie excuses him and just asks uh, that he return in time to start the movie. Outside of the theater, Debbie's mother walks up to Mr. Twiggs and hands him a lighter to light her cigarette, which she, like, starts to talk crap to him about because he's having a hard time doing it. And she's like, you're worthless. Yeah. <laughs> like, why don't you just light your own cigarette? Right. <laughs> uh, and she tells him that she's coming to see Deb as she's decided that they're going to sell the theater because the land is worth a small fortune. Mr. Twiggs begs her not to, as he's put 40 years into this theater. She says it's time for him to retire anyway, as he's old. Mr. Twiggs says that her husband would have been ashamed, and then he mumbles, bitch, under his breath as Miss Tennis walks away. <laughs> I really love her acting in this, too. She is hamming it up. I don't know her from anything, but I was like, I love this woman um, you know as i did not know i don't know peaches christ and didn't know who it was at first i thought she was him mm. she's got that look about her and um, yes I, honestly at first i was like is this like a really really good looking drag queen yeah that's <laughs> no she's I a very beautiful woman yeah but <laughs> the way she was made up was definitely more like drag makeup yeah and i loved it I'm glad I'm not alone because I, once I realized that she wasn't a drag queen, I was like, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be good at this. <laughs> <laughs> so she walks past Mr. Twiggs into the theater where she approaches Deb and tells her that she doesn't have to call her mother anymore. So this is another thing that made me think uh, you yeah. must be that bomb. Um, and she hands her the paperwork to sell the theater for her to sign and says that they'll both be rich. Debbie says that she won't because her father loved and believed in the theater and the show must go on. Her stepmom tells her that she's a boring librarian with no looks and that she's a loser like her fat ass father was. She grabs okay. Debbie's hand and holds it up against the butter pot inside of the popcorn machine, burning her and asking, will you sign it now? Uh, Debbie considers it for a, more, a moment before shouting that she won't and holds up the pen menacingly. Miss Tennis says, what are you going to do with that? You're bland. You have no star quality. This is this ends up being a trigger for Debbie's character or for the character Debbie, um, to which Debbie replies, fuck you, mother. <laughs> Stabs her in the neck repeatedly with the pen while shouting, blood, blood, blood. The wicked bitch is dead. Star quality. <laughs> which that last one was very on the nose. Uh, she had to announce star quality. But... <laughs> 
This is really fun. This is fun thing. What did you think of this interaction? I absolutely loved it. Again, it just helped me kind of like, oh, now I even see more what I'm getting into here. Like, this is just going to be camp central. So yes. I was kind of on board at this point. And, but I also liked, I didn't like the mom. She was a total bitch, but I liked her character <laughs> and wish yeah. she would have like been in it for a little bit longer. Me so, too. Which is a good thing, actually. It's not a bad thing. But I was like, oh, man, I liked her. Like, mm-hmm. wanted to see more of her. So Yeah, she was a lot of fun. Um, And this, too, is when Debbie is, like, pulls down her librarian bun and lets her hair down loose. And she's, like, rubbing blood all over herself. And we see that she's kind of transforming. Um, So this is, like, the first the first uh, level of her transformation. <laughs> you know what this reminded me of a little is Pearl. Yeah, I, mean, I could totally see that. Yeah. I love I mean, not that those are two different levels of filmmaking there, but just that character, like uh, just drunk with star power quality, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Like it, it that's, she's going to do this, you know, and always has that look on her face, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Very fun and interesting. Um, and then inside of the theater, the moviegoers start chanting, start the, start the movie. movie, start the movie. <laughs> and Debbie, her hair down now and her face and body covered in blood, suddenly comes back to reality in response to the chants and goes into the project- uh, projectionist booth, randomly pressing buttons until she's able to start the movie. Steven comes into the lobby to look for Deb and steps in Miss Tennis's blood, but doesn't notice and heads back into the theater when he hears everyone cheering. Deb realizes that she's turned on the video recording of her killing her mother in the lobby instead of Blood Feast. Everyone watches with glee, including Mr. Twiggs, who has just re-entered the theater. The theater goers think it's just a fun indie horror film, but Mr. Twiggs knows the truth. Mr. Twiggs walks out onto the stage and thanks the moviegoers for watching their short indie horror film that they created in honor of Mr. Tennis passing. Everyone claps enthusiastically, and Debbie looks pleased, and a little like she's been bitten by the fame bug when she hears the audience clapping. (laughs) it's like it's confirming that she has star quality yeah (laughs) fuck you mother mother (laughs) so funny (laughs) yeah i love this because when it first started playing i was like oh i didn't expect it to take the turn that it did which ends up being like the whole storyline of the film i was just like oh no she's already gonna get caught yeah but no this is that kind of a movie, which yep. is why I love these kinds of movies. <sighs> so fun. So hilarious. Um, in the next scene, Mr. Twiggs uh, has dragged Miss Tennis's body into the attic of the theater. And Debbie stands next to him and says, that's one woman no one will miss. But won't the theater start to smell? Mr. Tennis says that the attic and the ceiling are so high above the rest of the theater that no one will notice and tells her not to worry. He goes on to say that she should get back to the lobby to greet all of her new fans. Debbie smiles as everyone leaves and thanks her and tells her what a good job she did. Stephen especially enjoyed it and he tells Debbie so and he encourages her to make more. Stephen takes his shoes off at home where he begins to notice the blood on one of his shoes when all of a sudden his mom, played by the great Cassandra Peterson, suddenly bursts into his room and startles him. 
She asks where he's been, and he says that he was at the theater. She badgers him a little about picking a college and asking if he uh, looked at the college applications that she left for him. He says that he hasn't and that he's going to art school for animation. His mom jokes that she hasn't seen a Disney movie with decapitations or rotting corpses in it yet, so she's not sure why he would go to school for that. He accuses her of intentionally picking fights with him, and she says that he'll always be her baby no matter where he goes. She's just worried and wants him to make the right decision. So what do you think of our introduction to Miss Cassandra Peterson? A couple things. You had said to me that you thought she was so good in here, and I absolutely 100 agree. We agree. We don't get to see her just play like a normal person very much. I'm not. Has she done that even? Has she appeared as herself in other movies? I don't even know, but she, she could. Like, I, maybe, I'm not, and I mean, I'm talking movies like this, like indies and stuff, you know? I just think she'd be, she just did a really great job. I also laughed out loud when she's like, did you see the college brochures that I left you? And he's like, no, mom, I didn't see the giant mountain because there's like this huge pile of them on the bed right next. No, mom, yeah. I didn't see this giant mountain of brochures that you left on my bed. Um, and I also liked here <laughs> that obviously they are, this is like a little love letter to horror and they're talking about how we all kind of feel, right? Like that's, you know, like nobody likes this stuff. And if you're into this, there must be something wrong with you, which is going to come up a little bit more in a minute. But just mm-hmm. how kind of like an outsider we all kind of feel and how we can't like if you don't get it, you don't get it. And you can never make anybody understand what it is to be a horror fan. And I think that's a little bit of this dynamic. But as a mom, if I had a dollar for every time I said to my kids, you'll always be my baby, you know. My son, my son James is 28 and he's like 6'3", 6'4", huge guy, you know, towers over me. But (laughs) I always tell him, I always call him my baby, tell him he's my baby. So, and Landon too, who's 15 and he doesn't want to hear that crap. But I'm always like, you'll always be my baby, you know? He's like, oh my God, mom. So I just, I really thought that was really endearing. Like, even though she doesn't understand him. And, you know, of course, as a mom, you always just want what's best for your kids. I think any good mom feels that way, but you know, yeah. they're going to make their own decisions. And even though she doesn't totally get it, she doesn't really slam him for it either. I think she's more like saying, uh, I, you know, animation school isn't, I don't see them looking for like what it is that you do. Cause we see him sketching like really horrific scenes and stuff like yeah. that. And um, so I think she, she doesn't like belittle him for that or tell him that's bad. I think she's just trying to tell him like, you might need to take those skills and put them towards something else if you're going to become right. like a professional animation person. So, but I, this is probably one of my favorite scenes actually in the whole movie, like horror and gore aside, because it does have some good gore in it. But just as far, I don't know, it just is a little capsule. I just really like their interaction and just loved the mom that Cassandra is playing. So yeah, yeah I really liked it. Yeah. And they're kind of like our two only real like straight people as far as acting goes you know like everybody else kind of camps it up in one way or another to varying degrees but they don't like they're more serious um serious acting and yeah I think like their relationship and love for each other really comes through yeah and yeah yeah, I was like really I bet that Cassandra Peterson loved this role because I have heard her say before she's done some acting roles where she's just Cassandra Peterson and she loves doing that you know because she never gets to um 
And so I think getting to see her actual acting chops in this, because she, there have been roles too, like in the Munster, she was in the Munsters as like a realtor. And she's kind of like a normal person, but still kind of like camping it up because that whole movie is just camp, you know? And in this, you get to see, oh, she can like act, act. Yeah. So. Is she a does she have kids? Do you know? She does. She does. I think you could feel that. I mean, I I think that comes through in how she played this role, and I just loved their dynamic. And it seems like she's a single mom. I don't think we ever really see or hear about his dad or anything. So yeah, yeah, I just loved it. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because I feel like there there's a lot of, you know, the situation in a movie where it's too, it, like, leans too much one way or the other, you know? Like, mm-hmm. she could just be this really nagging mom who doesn't, like, doesn't feel like she actually even cares about her son or something. And I think she played that line really well where it's like, I'm concerned and, like, you're going off to become a grown-up, but I do love you and I support you. I don't want your heart to get broken or for you to waste your time, you know, and I I mean, so Plus, um, I thought was, she did a good job at that. It was refreshing to see a single mom where it's not written into the script that she's so harried all the time or exhausted mm. or, you know, doesn't have a good relationship with her kid. That just seems like to be what you see a lot. She's just seemed completely fine and normal and seemed to have a really good relationship with her son. I think I saw myself probably a lot in this. I feel like I'm really, really super, super close to both of my sons and kind of, but I've always just treated them as people. Like I feel like she kind of does, you know, like I'm, I'm the mom if you need me, but I kind of like treat my kids more as like friends or, or I see them as people, not just my kids. And I felt Mm -hmm. like she kind of felt that way too about him and just wanted the best for him. So totally. Yay. I loved it too. Um, back at the movie theater on another day, Peaches Christ purchases some concessions (laughs) and asks Debbie where the ladies room is. Debbie points her in the right direction and then Steven enters and excitedly congratulates Debbie. She's confused, so he explains that that was Peaches Christ, who is the queen of the underground in San Fran and is probably there to see her short. Steven heads into the theater and a goth girl behind him in the line approaches the counter where she tells Debbie that she loves her short and has seen it three times already. Debbie introduces herself as Deborah, which I'm pretty sure this is the first time that she's taking on this kind of, like, alias, if you want to call it that, uh, and pours something into the moviegoer's drink, uh, who confirms that she's new in town, so thank God for this theater making her feel more at home. Debbie tells her that a new short will be coming out soon. And it's for, for foreshadowing there. So let me ask you, why do you think it seems like everybody, well, not everybody, but, well, yeah, pretty much everybody that she picks from here on out has done something to her. But this seemed just like a rando. Do you think just because it had to start somewhere and she's just drunk with power or like, why do you think she picked her? Yeah, well, I think she picked her because she confirmed that she's, like, new in town and doesn't know anybody. Oh, okay. All right, yeah. And it kind of seems like a little bit of a small town vibe. I know this, I'm pretty sure this is supposed to actually be taking place in San Francisco, though, so that's obviously not a small town, but maybe the specific area that they're in, I don't know, but she did, Deborah brought that up, like, oh, you're new here, right? Maybe it's more like a small theater, (laughs) like every, the same people usually come um, and this person's clearly new so I think it was just wrong place wrong time for poor hot goth girl 
which is unfortunate because she seems nice and I really um I mean she seemed kind of annoying too but I really liked when she was saying like thank god for this theater you know because it made me feel at home like I'm amongst my people and that's like what you were talking about earlier like we get it we're the weirdos that's right yeah I mean she's exactly who Debbie would want to have coming into her theater like she'd be perfect for that but I think yeah now that you say that I guess she's also a perfect victim and California I mean I'm not from there I've been there once in my life but that's probably a hotbed for people who have come there on their own to like search out their dreams you know and that's probably a perfect place to have a theater like this where you need you know people without strings to you know do away yeah. with per se so yeah totally. <laughs> All right. So as everyone leaves the theater, we see that the goth girl is passed out in one of the theater chairs and her stuff is missing. When she finally awakes, she realizes that she's locked in and calls out for help. She's able to leave the theater room through a back door and ends up in the basement where we see Mr. Twig's shadow holding an axe. Uh, and we're suddenly viewing the goth girl in black and white through the lens of a camera that he's holding as he approaches her menacingly laughing. And he had this funny little laugh throughout the whole movie where he's kind of like just laughing to himself. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not like a big boisterous laugh yeah. or something. He's just like, <laughs> yeah. so funny. Um, and he looks like he's having a lot of fun, which I thought was kind of weird. Like I understood why he was excited about Debbie killing her mom because she was going to like take the theater away from them. But his delight uh, throughout the rest of the movie is you know, concerning. <laughs> well, I think it kind of, we were talking on the last show about are some people just evil? And it seems like <laughs> Debbie and Mr. Twiggs have a common uh, inner darkness, I guess, that maybe neither one of them knew about till they yeah. killed somebody, you know. But yes, right. he definitely, I mean, he kind of pushes her. I mean, I think she, even after the, like, the first kill of her stepmom, I don't know that she would necessarily have gone this direction, but Mr. Twiggs just was totally like, all right, this is where we're going now. And just like, you know, totally was like, okay, don't worry, we'll get this cleaned up. And I, you know, it's great, these little movies. Uh, and I think, you know, he wants to keep the, the theater going, obviously, and he sees that her making these shorts might be a way to do that. And he's just, like, yeah. totally on board from kill number one. So Yeah, and he looks, you know, he looks very um, weak, <laughs> to put it. <laughs> he looks like he's about 85. It's like, seriously. Yeah. and he's, so. like, dragging all these bodies around. Yeah. So funny. <laughs> uh, but he uh, he pulls off her shirt to reveal her breasts and she runs away. I put runs away because yeah. it's definitely that kind of like yeah. slow <laughs> falling back kind of while screaming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and she's uh, able to escape into an adjacent room where Debbie waits for her dressed in Victorian attire. The goth girl falls into her lap, saying that there's a man, a killer, that's after her. Debbie just sits there waiting for Mr. Twigs to catch up. When he does, she starts to recite her script in a disgraceful French accent. <laughs> Mr. Twigs tries to force the goth girl's head into a guillotine that he apparently constructed based on a book given to him by Debbie. <laughs> but her head doesn't fit, and he repeatedly smashes her face against the board. <laughs> Debbie asks if he followed the instructions in the book, as the dimensions are clearly off. And the girl will now need a nose job when she's suddenly struck with an idea. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! 
I was like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? I am. Yeah. This might be my favorite scene of the whole movie. It's just (laughs) so funny. I will never forget it. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. This is the scene where my husband happened to come into the room and he's like, ooh, boobs, what's going on? And then he's like, (laughs) what are you watching? What is this? Like, (laughs) sorry, this is a movie made by a drag queen. In the next scene, moviegoers enter the theater and we see the poster for the new short displayed, which reads, A Tale of Two Severed Titties. Stephen comes, of course, and he brings three of his fellow high school friends. All of them are people that look college age, like at least. (laughs) We watch the short play out to reveal that Debbie cut off the goth girl's breast using the guillotine because the hole was only big enough for boobs uh, while killing two birds with one stone because she turns the short into a kind of cautionary commercial for the theater. Uh, this is what happens if you use your cell phone in the theater. The screen reads, even in France, cell phones are rude. The film goers all clap and cheer aside from two women in the audience dressed in black, which I don't I put that in because they seemed important, but I don't think that they ever come back. So I don't know no, if that I don't was think so either. a fun random thing. These two women just sitting there kind of like sulking with straight faces. But um, unless they were just supposed to be goth. You know, just but everybody in the theater is gone. Yeah, that's true. And they were like older women, too. I thought maybe they were like big wigs or something. I don't know. Um, But yeah, so this short is awesome. And the poor goth girl, you know, is just like shrieking and she just like runs into the wall and we just see like the two uh, spots of blood run down and she like smacks herself against the wall and just like falls down to her death. So funny. And the, the scene, so when the boobs are cut off with the guillotine, they each plop, literally plop onto the floor <laughs> and they, they like close up on it. It looked so great. Yeah. Like, oh my God. It just looked like two like chicken cutlets, just like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, Uh, so fun um and then now we're in high school with steven and one of his friends that he had brought along to the theater uh and they're talking about the short film this is one of his female friends and she says that it was awful and misogynistic she even asks if steven hates women based on his taste Stephen argues that there's never been a great female filmmaker and it's happening now with Debbie, which he finds inspiring. He gives his friend a pretty awesome gory drawing that he made of her and she genuinely likes it and thanks him. Uh, she's very like, what's the word? I don't know. She reminded me of a character from like the Gilmore Girls or something where she just had like a quick response to everything and she pulled out all these references and was just like constantly talking. Um, so personally, this character really annoyed me. <laughs> that too. And I think here, like when we said before about how like, um, you know, uh, people don't get it. I think there, there's little, these little nods throughout here of like what it's like to be a, a horror fan and her, you know, just like, um, or him saying like there's no female, great female directors. And this was made in 2010. That kind of stuck out to me because now I feel like we've seen that change in 15 years. Yeah. You know, and also that tri- that trope here, they're going to they're putting in how horror is awful and misogynistic to people who don't get it. But that those of us who do don't see it that way. Right. Yeah. Kind of like what we were talking about when we were covering um, Slumber Party Massacre. Yep, you know, exactly. we were quoting quoting that director. 
Although, you know, thinking about this, though, I don't know if there is a great, like, female filmmaker yet that gets talked about, like, <laughs> the way that John Carpenter does. Oh, no, definitely not. But I do think, when I think back to 2010, I think we weren't hearing about film when women in horror like we are now. Yeah. Um. You know, so, yeah, it was probably a pretty generalized statement. And you're right, there isn't, like, one great one. But I do feel like, I mean, the way, I think he felt like there was, like, none whatsoever, yeah. you know. So I feel like yeah. maybe we've come a little farther, maybe not as far as I'd like to see. But <laughs> Yeah, definitely we've come farther, Um, which is exciting. And that's why I always like to point out whenever we do this podcast or the Horrorcast, you know, if it was directed by – a female, especially if it was a directorial debut, I always like to be like, this is a yeah. lady filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Please support it. So in the lunchroom, they meet with their other two friends um, who had gone, and they're already discussing the short movie between the two of them. And they prove that they're high school students by discussing Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> And then all of a sudden, a girl who's dressed all in pink named Claire comes up to their table, along with two of her pink-clothed cronies, and asks Stephen to take her on a date to the Victoria Theater to see the new short, as she's heard that he's friends with Deborah Tenise. 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 Uh, and Stephen's friend seems appalled at the idea of him going on a date with Claire. Um, and his friend, by the way, this female friend of his, I think is Judy, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes, that sounds right. And she seems like she kind of has a crush on Steven. I don't know if it's reciprocated, um, but Steven does seem like he genuinely cares about her. I thought they were boyfriend and girlfriend just from the previous scene where he's got that drawing for her and stuff. And I'm like, this girl's going to ask him out right in front of her. That's so rude for him to say yes. But I guess at this point, I realize maybe they're not, it's not reciprocated or he doesn't see it. Like she really likes him, but he might not necessarily see it that way. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it seems like, well, they were, of course, they all seem like they might be like kind of like goth kids too. And this group of girls that walks up reminds me of like mean girls, you know, just totally. that group of uh, popular girls from the school. So I think their his friends were also kind of appalled just that he would be associating with that group anyway. But yeah, yeah I did feel a little more of a tension from Judy that seemed to be like, yeah, they were teasing me like, yeah, you're actually going to go out with her. But I think she was more like, you're actually going to go out with her, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just a little hint of When I'm right here, that. you know? Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't seem like he's super into Claire or anything either, but he seems like he's just going along with it, and I'm not really sure why. Well, always... maybe because he found a girl that'll actually seems to maybe be into the same things as him, because even his friends, I think they kind of, like, put up with it for him, but I don't know like up until this point, how into horror any of them actually were. Like, right. you know, we don't actually ever really see any, like, of his friends being into what he's into either. Uh, well, they go to a movie with him in a, later, right? But, um, like, up until this point, it's just that now it's, like, Deborah Tanise and he knows her. So, like, all of a sudden, everybody's interested in him, you know, who all just thought he was weird, you know, two days ago. So Yeah. No, they had gone to the movie with him before this because that's, oh, before why, this? Okay. that's why Judy's telling him, like, that she thought it was awful and misogynistic. That's right. Yeah, that's right. My bad. Okay. Well. Yeah, and I think his other two friends liked it more. But, yeah, I don't think that it's solidified that any of them are, like, horror fans. 
they all seem like they're just like outsiders in their own different ways. Yeah. Yep. And they've all come together. <laughs> yep. As we weirdos typically do. I say that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a date with Claire. Now in the next scene, Evelyn, who was the other librarian, Minkstole, um, goes to the Victoria and she leaves a note for Debbie saying that she's worried about her and that she's missed all of her shifts at the library. She tries kind of like knocking and calling out for her and nobody ever answers. So she just leaves this note and Mr. Twiggs delivers the letter to Debbie, who says that she is no longer a concessionaire or a librarian. She's now a star and a filmmaker. <laughs> and she acts offended at the very idea of Evelyn coming and banging on the door of her theater. Mr. Twiggs says that they may want to put up a help wanted sign. And Debbie says that they're experimental and not just anyone can walk in off the street and join them. They will need to be hand-chosen. Debbie puts down a newspaper, of which the front page has a photo of twin girls who are apparently dangerous and being released from their psych ward. Yeah. So, hint, hint, foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) At the local mental health facility, Debbie and Mr. Twig speak to the woman in charge as they are there to pick up the murderous twins, Vita and Vera. Uh, And they're posing as their family. Debbie claims to be their aunt and says that she wants to help them adjust to normal life. The woman tells her that she can't guarantee that they're cured of their mental ailments and says that it's their 18th birthday today. They've been in this mental health facility for 11 years. She says, may God bless you both because they're adopting murderous girls and that's nice of them or because she suspects that they'll be murdered. (laughs) Plus, who did these <laughs> girls murder at age seven? I, you know, I didn't get to read the newspaper in great detail, but I feel like they had killed their parents, maybe. Yeah, that, yeah, that would make sense. Like, why no one out, no one's gonna like dispute the fact that these two randos just show up pretending to be their aunt. Exactly. You know, so. Back at the high school in Steven's class, he draws a picture based on Debbie's short film, (laughs) and his teacher snatches it away during her lecture and tells Steven to meet her after class. And now we get some scenes that are kind of like intercut with each other, so we're kind of going back and forth between the high school and then what's going on with Debbie in the city. So in the city, we see a drug addict kind of wandering around aimlessly until he comes across an elderly Asian woman who he beats with her own cane and steals her purse and Mink's soul. (laughs) Debbie and Mr. Twiggs are out for a walk when they come across this scene. So that was actually really kind of hard to watch. It looked, it didn't look campy like the rest of the movie. It looked mean. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And after class, this is back at the high school, Stephen is talking to his teacher uh, who feels that she's protecting the class and the school from him. Uh, and she's talking about his violent drawing and the Columbine shooting. So she's kind of she's equating these two things. Um, well, And his drawing was the boob guillotine, which I thought was pretty yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why it would cause well, maybe it could cause concern. But what is he going to do? Chop off people's boobs? I don't think so. Right. But this lady kind of becomes like his villain throughout the rest of the movie. She's like mm-hmm. out, out for him. Um, and back at the Victoria Theater, we see the drug addict who apparently is called Adrian and uh, the murderous twins sitting in the audience seats. They've just watched the latest short. And Adrian says, whatever they oh, whatever. They did her a favor. Bitch had sloppy tits. 
Wow. <laughs> like strangest reaction yeah. I was expecting. Uh, and then he asks the twins how they know Deborah. And he gets annoyed uh, when they ignore him for a minute before one turn, one twin finally turns to him and says that she's murdering her actors. And then um, the other twin turns to finish her sentence. She's murdering them for real. A few drops of mysterious liquid fall onto Adrian's face and he looks up to find blood leaking through the ceiling. They're forming some sort of shape, but I can't figure out what they are. Were you able to tell what was going on on the ceiling? That was, um, <clears throat> it looked to me like they were like metal flourishes. Um, like this, the ceiling was like that old, it looked like a, maybe an old type, like tin type ceiling or something mm. where it had like fancy filigrees and flourishes on it. And I thought, what is that? Like alien eggs or something. But then when it got like really close to it, I think it, the blood, it was, it was just like two white finials or little mm. flourishes that were like part of the ceiling and they were just covered in blood. Okay. I, I was wondering that too. Like what? Yeah, I was like, what is going on? Are those like body parts that somebody like threw up on at the ceiling? Like I was very confused. Okay. And uh, we see too, while we're getting a nice zoom in of Adrian's face that he has like really gross, gunky black teeth, really like mottled teeth and he has greasy hair, you know, so they're really, they're really uh, on the nose with his addiction here. Uh, back in the city, Stephen talks to Judy on the phone uh, when he passes a restaurant and notices Debbie, Mr. Twiggs, and their three new criminal friends inside eating. Inside, Debbie gives a passionate speech about how she's their leader and she knows shit about them and that the cops would love to hear it. So they can basically stay and follow her lead or go out on their own. Uh, at this point, we've progressively watched Debbie start to apply more makeup and do her hair, dress fancier. Um, so she's getting quite more dolled up as the story goes along. And it's like after each murder, she's gaining more and more star quality, you could say. <laughs> she's becoming Deborah Tanise. That's right. Yeah. Uh, back at home, Stephen sulks while talking to Judy, who we certainly, we, um, sorry, Stephen sulks while talking to his friend Judy on the phone, and he whines that his mother said he can't go to the movies. His mom comes in to talk to him, and he gets off the phone with Judy and says he'll call her back. She says that she's sorry, but every mom wants to know that their child is okay. She tries to get Stephen to open up to her and says that he can tell her anything. Uh, Claire also calls to confirm that they're still on for 7 p.m. T- tomorrow night, which Stephen confirms and then gets off the phone again. His mom asks if that was his girlfriend. He laughs at the notion of him dating the Claire Cavanaugh. His mom asks if he likes Judy. He says that Judy is just a good friend. She insinuates that he's gay and he can tell her if he is because it's not a bad thing. He says that he isn't gay, but he thinks he might be in love with an older woman. Cassandra Peterson looks up at the sexy Elvira poster on Stephen's wall and asks, how old? <laughs> That's like the one line that she delivered like she was Elvira. Yeah. Stephen says 30 or 40. So that was a fun little wink and nod to Cassandra Peterson looking at herself as Elvira. Uh, Debbie, who's dressed in some old-timey peasant clothes and a big wig, walks into the library in the dark of the night with the gang, her gang. <laughs> they enter the library, and they taunt Evelyn in the dark. This scene is actually kind of scary, like yeah. I said, for Ming's soul. Yes. Uh, she seemed genuinely worried. 
and so they're taunting her in the dark when the lights suddenly turn on. And Debbie says it must be the janitors. She sends Adrian and the twins after the janitors to take care of them. In the meantime, Debbie sews Evelyn's mouth shut and speaks with an English accent while Mr. Twiggs records and evilly laughs to himself. The other man, um, the other man, Adrian and the twins return bloody and say that they have taken care of the janitors. Debbie excuses everyone with, that's a wrap. But through that sewing scene, oh, it looks, <clears throat> it looks so good. It looks so real. It really did. And it looks very painful. Yes. And just seeing Debbie and how like disconnected she's become, you know, while she's committing these murders. Yeah. Um, especially because, you know, Evelyn was kind of her friend and she was acting annoyed about Evelyn coming, you know, when she was at the theater. But at the beginning of the movie, I was thinking like that they cared for one another, like to some degree. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is kind of proof that like she's gone off the deep end because it's not some rando or somebody who crossed her path like in a menacing way. This is someone who she worked with and cared about. Back at the Victoria, there's a great big line of people to catch the new short film. Claire and Stephen wait together in line, and Claire talks to one of her friends on the phone, saying that Stephen was so considerate. He already got the tickets, and he goes on, uh, and she goes on to talk about him like he isn't there, saying he's very nerd chic and totally indie. <laughs> Stephen's friend Judy just happens to be walking by, and he asks if she wants to get in line with them. He's got the eyes like. Please save me. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's funny. Judy just happens to be walking by. She's yeah. clearly in love with Steven. Yes. Um, <laughs> Claire looks annoyed at, at his consideration, and Judy declines the offer. When the line moves and Steven and Claire make their way to the front door, they're greeted by a newscaster who interviews them, asking why they think these short films are so popular. Stephen gushes about the craftsmanship and praises Deb for single-handedly saving the theater. Debbie replies that it's Deborah, because she happens to be standing there, too. And he apologizes, kind of taken aback, because they're, like, kind of cool with each other. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Deb, Deborah, not Debbie. <laughs> um, and then Claire introduces herself and says that it's nice to meet her, Miss Tennise. <laughs> And then Adrian shouts in their face for tickets and they oblige and enter. <laughs> Very like out of nowhere. He's yeah. like, tickets! Um, and then the newscaster tells Debbie that he'll get her interview a little later. The twins are the concessionaires in the lobby. And Claire asks Stephen if he thinks that she's pretty while pointing towards Debbie. He says yes, to which she says, ew, she's totally Uggs. I'm sorry, but she wouldn't need to wear that much. She wouldn't need to wear that much makeup if she were naturally pretty. She looks like a drag queen. Then <laughs> they take their popcorn and leave the concession. And behind them stands Peaches Christ and her her friend, who's another drag queen. And they're clearly offended by her statement, as they should be. Rude. Really. So. And I love the twins. <laughs> I know. I love them too. <laughs> That's definitely, if I was one of these characters, that's the, one of the ones I would be. Who would you be? Um, Yeah, I think the twin. One of the twins. You and I could be the twins. Hell yeah, we're the twins. <laughs> nice. Yes. We're the same height. <laughs> yeah. We could be twins. <laughs> yep. You've already got the right hair, so. Yeah, right. I do have black lipstick, although it's not a pretty sight. <laughs> I don't anymore, but I definitely have in my lifetime and can't imagine it'd be a pretty sight anymore. Either, so. <laughs> I busted it out for the Dresden Dolls concert that we went to in December. 
And my daughter's like, what? Where did that come from? I'm like, hello, I'm goth. I'm constantly trying to convince my husband and my daughter that I'm goth and they don't believe me. I'm like, yeah, duh, of course I have black lipstick. So in the theater, Peaches Christ and her friends sit right in front of Claire with their giant hair blocking her view. <laughs> Love it. So, so passive-aggressive. Yes. <laughs> On stage, Mr. Twiggs introduces Deborah, and Debbie comes out to introduce her new short film. Claire gets up in the middle of her speech to go use the bathroom. Debbie definitely takes a note, annoyed. When Claire heads into the bathroom, one of the twins quickly places an out-of-order sign on the door. Debbie finishes up her speech and blows kisses to the crowd. And then the maiming of the shrew starts to play on the screen. Meanwhile, Debbie dresses into a red dress and heads to the bathroom. Claire farts on the toilet <laughs> while looking at her phone, which is just like, this is a random little throwaway, whatever. She's just like laughing to herself. It's like, okay. And then Debbie breaks into the stall that Claire's using and begins to yell at her in a less elegant English accent than the one that she used in the library. Debbie accuses her of calling her a whore, to which Claire replies, I never said you were a whore. I said you were ugly. <laughs> and is shortly after stabbed repeatedly by Debbie. Adrian films from overhead, and Claire's death is actually pretty gruesome. We get a shot of her dead on the toilet after the assault, which is actually sobering. Yeah. Like, the body just kind of, like, slumps back all of a sudden, and you see her face, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, that was probably one of the best kills, I thought, yeah. in the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, I really like that about the movie, is that, you know, it's really campy, but then we get some, like, actual scenes of horror, and you can tell that Peaches Christ, you know, is a fan. Yes, yes, 100%. Yeah. In the theater, the audience continues to watch the short film with bulging eyes. In the attic, Evelyn lies bound and wakes uh, to the corpses of all of Debbie's previous victims lying around her. Evelyn tries to scream, but her mouth is still shown, uh, sewn shut uh, until she begins to pull her lips apart and eventually ah. the thread binding her mouth. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that was hard to watch. Yeah. She screams out for help. Mr. Twiggs can hear her screams, but the audience seems to not be able to. Mr. Twiggs uh, goes into the attic with an axe and takes care of Evelyn by decapitating her. Oh. R.I.P. Um. Mink soul. <laughs> In the theater, the short film ends, and everyone claps, especially Stephen. In the lobby, Stephen asks Adrian and the twins if they've seen Claire and provides a physical description. Adrian says that she left alone in a cab a while ago. Stephen goes to look for Claire by the bathrooms and runs into Deb, who he gushes to about how much he loved her short film. He says that her father's influence totally shines through in her work, and he asks if they might have a job opening because he would love to work there. Debbie says that they don't currently, but that he'll be next in line when they do, and she gives him a little smirk and a wink. She's like, I'm the cougar taking charge here. Like, she's acting all like, this boy loves me. Yep. Um... Sorry, where was I? <laughs> Evelyn's dressed back in her black dress and wiping her face clean. Um, Stephen walks outside and tries to call Claire's phone, totally not paying attention to the fact that Adrian and the twins are washing blood down the drain out front of the theater. Yeah, right? Very nonchalant. Yeah. <clears throat> On Monday, Stephen and Judy eat lunch together when Claire's two cronies approach him to ask if he knows where Claire is. He says that he hasn't seen her since Friday, and he tells them uh, what the usher of the theater told him. 
They say that he's the last one to have seen her and that he's creepy, insinuating that he has something to do with her disappearance. Judy scares the girls away and tells Stephen that she's probably just sick and then jokes that she's probably binging while pointing into her mouth down at her throat. She can't do that anymore. (laughs) Can't make fun of that. Uh, Stephen looks worried. Judy asks him if he at least enjoyed the new short film, which he says was amazing. Judy questions if he understands the definition of the word. (laughs) And then (laughs) she says that she's going to go see it today, actually, because she's going after school to interview Deborah for an article about women who hate women, (laughs) which I'm sure is not what the article actually is. Yeah. At the Victoria, Mr. Twig shows Debbie footage for the new movie. She's pleased with it, and she says aloud, What would I do without you, Mr. Twigs? And then falls into his lap and proceeds to make out with his old ass. (laughs) I don't know why I put that. While he gropes her breasts. It's very weird. Uh, It seemed like out of nowhere, too. But like you were saying earlier, he's been pushing her, you know, and they've been inspiring each other, apparently. Uh, someone knocks at the door and Debbie leaves <laughs> and Mr. Twiggs looks very disappointed. <laughs> at school, Stephen is called into the office where he's being grilled by Claire's parents and the principal and the teacher who gave him detention the other day. He pleads with them that he doesn't know where Claire is and he tells them that they should question the usher at the theater since he was the last one to actually see her. Nobody's buying his story about the usher. Back at the Victoria, Judy waits in the office uh, for Debbie so that she can interview her. After Mr. Twig seats her and leaves, she notices Claire's phone on the desk. She had made a comment about it earlier to Claire, so it makes sense that she recognizes it. She looks completely taken aback by this when Debbie suddenly enters the office. Judy quickly hides the phone in her bra and tries to act normal when Debbie approaches. Now, back at the school, there's a Detective Woods who enters the office, and Claire's mother yells that Stephen did something to her daughter and she wants him arrested. The teacher adds that they've been worried about Stephen's character and his potential to hurt himself as well as others. (laughs) This teacher, man. I hate people like that. So annoying. Also distracting from, like, the actual criminal activity and the actual murderer. What year did Columbine happen? I don't remember. Because she just seemed really fixated on it, and that's, like, why she's trying to be hyper vigilant about she's going to find the kid that's going to blow up the school. Yeah. You know? Let's see. In 1999. Oh. So this was, like, 10 years later, but it kind of was, like, you know, the first like that, and it wasn't like a normal thing like it is now. Not <clears throat> not necessarily in schools, but we hear about like mass shootings all the time yeah. now. So probably even in 2010, there wasn't. You know, it was still an anomaly. But she's like sure that he's going to be the kid that's going to blow up the school, right? Yeah, I'm trying to think. In 2010, Raina was five, and I think they were just starting to talk about introducing like drills for school shootings. So. I think it was still prevalent enough because I remember yeah. I remember Raina coming home and telling me that they were doing that. And I was like, what? That's a thing? Like, it's becoming a thing that's so big and bad that they have to teach you drills to, like, protect yourself. I remember being, like, super scared and yeah. thinking about, like, maybe I should homeschool Raina. <laughs> <laughs> then she would have turned out even worse than she already did. So, just kidding. <laughs> uh All right. So back at the Victoria, Judy asks Debbie if they can reschedule because she's actually not feeling very well all of a sudden. 
Judy goes to leave and Debbie follows close behind, questioning her reasons for wanting to reschedule. When Judy gets downstairs, she's unable to leave because the entrance is locked. The whole staff meets in the lobby and taunts Judy. And then Debbie asks if she's ever acted before because she's not very good <laughs> at it. Uh, Adrian yells that she took the cell phone and he calls Claire's cell phone to prove it. When Claire's phone rings in Judy's blouse, everyone closes in around her and the twins yielding their knives and Judy screams out in fear. First thing, uh, it was hilarious when her boobs started ringing. And secondly, (laughs) she played being scared here really, really well. It just felt really like, I know, it was a good performance. (laughs) No, you're right, because she played acting normal very badly, Yes, as Debbie pointed out. So you were correct. (laughs) Uh, Back in the school office, the detective says that Stephen is free to go for now, which confuses and angers Claire's mother. At the Rise and Shine news station, Deborah gets Deborah gets made up by um, Adrian, <laughs> who scares off the actual makeup artist while he calls Debbie Gorge. At Stephen's house, he and his mom watch the interview unfold on their television. Uh, they play a new scene on TV from The Slasher and the Rye, Debbie's newest short film. Stephen's mom turns off the TV disgusted and says that she doesn't understand it. She says that she'll come to the theater and try to see what's so great about it. So she's, like, really trying to understand where yeah. Steven's coming from. Yeah. But she, like, clearly looks very concerned when she yeah. sees that clip. Yeah. In the interview, Debbie says that great acting comes from great direction and says the actors just need the right motivation. Steven hurriedly walks to the Victoria, passing missing uh, missing posters for Claire. Mr. Twiggs greets Stephen at the door, and Stephen says that he needs to talk to Deborah because Judy has gone missing, and he knows that she was supposed to be there yesterday to interview her. Stephen hears screaming from inside, and Mr. Twiggs says that they're recording the newest film um, and shushes Stephen away. Stephen calls Detective Woods, who we see appear at the theater in the next scene. At the Victoria, Debbie radios Adrian, um, who is in the attic about a potential new actor in the lobby, to which Adrian replies that it's getting kind of crowded in the (laughs) attic and he's not sure how many more actors will fit. (laughs) Yeah. We see Judy tied up in the attic as well as some other random people, along with all the corpses. Debbie greets the detective and tries to decline his request for a tour when he says that there are two missing people and he'll get a search warrant if he has to. The detective is accompanied by Stephen, so Debbie says that Stephen is a stalker, and she assures the detective that there's nothing going on. The detective and Stephen leave. The detective, um, to go get the search warrant. Out front, Debbie comes out and tells Stephen that she's disappointed in him as she thought that he was her number one fan. He asks where Judy is while being approached by Mr. Twiggs and one of the other twins and one of the twins. Debbie gives Stephen a free ticket to her feature film debut, which will come out soon. In the next scene, Stephen shows up at the Victoria to see the movie. Claire's two friends are in line and taunt Stephen for coming alone, saying that girls must not like disappearing. <laughs> Stephen finds his mom waiting in line. I love some of these lines are so good. And I'm like, a drag queen definitely wrote that. Yes, yes. (laughs) That is, I don't know, that's just my kind of humor, that dry, sarcastic Mm -hmm. wit. So I appreciated that, yes. Absolutely. 
Uh, Stephen finds his mom waiting in line and begs her to go home, saying it's dangerous. She says that she's not going anywhere, thinking that he's just being hysterical, <laughs> and tells him to try to have a good time. Which he he, he is kind of coming off like hysterical, like, and she probably thinks, oh, he's just embarrassed to be seen with his mom or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, you need to relax. It's going to be fine. Let me just watch the movie. Uh, in the lobby, Adrian sits on the counter um, in drag with a microphone, inviting yeah, everyone. Yeah, he's in drag all of a sudden now. Yeah, he's just very <laughs> bizarre and all over the place. Yes. Uh, and he's got his microphone, and he's inviting everyone to take a complimentary cup of nectarine juice for a toast that they're going to do. Don't know why nectarine juice. Um. <laughs> is that even a thing? Like, is nectarine juice a thing? I don't know. Apparently. Sounds yummy. Yeah, it does, actually. <laughs> Um, for a toast that they're going to do. And the only people who don't grab one are Stephen and his mother. She says that they should, but he tells her under no circumstances is she to drink one. Stephen walks around the theater telling people that the drinks are poisoned and begs them not to drink. One of Claire's friends stands up and yells at him, telling him to cut the shit. Peach's Christ is in the audience and says, that's a nice touch, thinking it's a marketing gimmick. Stephen's mom comes over to grab him and uh, have him sit back down. Claire's friend laughs at the fact that he's there with his mom, and she says that it's time to stop waiting and shoots back her drink. Uh, quite a few members in the audience pass their shots over to her, and she shoots them all back while dancing around. Just like, okay. <laughs> Debbie comes out on stage to introduce Gore and Peace. These titles <laughs> are so great. They're so fun. I love yeah. it her uh, future length debut and tells the audience that they are the movie while a camera is rolled out on stage. She offers up a toast to everyone. Um, and when Steven yells out that it's poisoned, Claire's friend turns back to yell at him again, but her face, which has been slowly changing throughout Debbie's speech is now completely swollen and disfigured. And she vomits on the person behind her before dying. <laughs> Peaches Christ says that that was a nice touch. <laughs> Some of the audience still hold up their cups for a toast when Debbie turns to resume, but Stephen yells at them, trying to reason with them that the drinks are obviously poisoned. Now there's proof in the death of Claire's friend. Uh, Debbie, annoyed, tells Stephen that uh, this first act is for him and disappears from the stage. We suddenly see Debbie confronting a bound Judy backstage. Stephen follows close behind to save Judy. Debbie is kicked by Judy, and Stephen emerges soon after to cut her loose. In the theater, half of the people have taken their shots, and half have not. So the poisoned half begin to become disfigured, with blood-filled boils all over their faces. One of Stephen's friends cries out in the audience that Claire was too hot to die as her death plays on the screen. <laughs> Stephen's other friend says it's not real when all of a sudden Claire's real dead body falls through the ceiling, which has become soft with blood and all manner of bodily fluids, right into their laps. Stephen's mother yells out to Peaches to look out as the next corpse begins to fall from the ceiling. It's the headless corpse of Evelyn, uh, which drops down and right onto Adrian's head, and it gets stuck blinding him while he's trying to attack Peaches, whose friend is now dead in the theater chair from drinking the nectarine. The rest of the audience is trying to find a way out of the theater, but all the doors are locked. I was trying to figure out a way to describe how Mink Stoll's body is headless. It's falling from the ceiling, like, upside down. So it, like, falls onto Adrian's head. So it's like his head is, like, in her neck, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
And I was like, okay, I can't figure out a way to write that, so that's what I'm going to have to explain when we're recording. But it was very bizarre and fun to see. Yes, for sure. I loved it. Do you have anything to add so far about this whole scene and how it's unfolding? No, it's just we're kind of kicking it up a notch here and, and going off the rails a little bit, but in a fun way. Yes, absolutely. And um, Cassandra Peterson is still playing it straight, you know, and she's yes. like, yep. oh my God, look out. And she looks worried and I just love it. Outside of the theater, the newscaster is recording saying that the sold, uh, sold out show has become a hostage situation. <laughs> Mr. Twiggs walks around the audience recording as everyone fights to find an exit. Judy hits him over the head with a movie reel filled with film uh, when he turns to look at the dead bodies falling through the ceiling behind him. Suddenly, Stephen's mom appears on the screen yelling for Stephen. Debbie has gotten a hold of her and um, is holding her hostage. Stephen goes to rescue her, and we see the twin sisters on the screen dousing the room in gasoline and lighting a fire. They soon emerge in the theater and walk around menacingly with their blades. On the roof, Stephen finds Debbie with his mother. And while she holds a blade to her chest, Debbie taunts Stephen crazily. <laughs> She's all eyes bugged out, hair yeah. crazy. Yeah. Stephen tells Debbie that her father would be ashamed of her, saying that he appreciated the genre of horror and respected the artistry and talent in the genre. This breaks Debbie as she cries out that she did it. All for you, Daddy. She really loses it when Stephen tells her that she has no star quality. And she goes to quiet the voices in her head when Stephen's able to pull his mom free of her grasp. Stephen's mother, now holding the blade, stabs Debbie in the throat, and Stephen pushes her off the roof. So we got a mother-son duo here, which I love. <laughs> Down on the street, the newscaster is interviewing Stephen's teacher, who is once again <laughs> bragging that she's known that there was something wrong with Stephen for a while. <laughs> And we watch in slow motion as Debbie falls backwards through the air until she lands on top of a vehicle below and dies from the impact. The detective shows up and the teacher blames him for letting Stephen go, saying that this wouldn't have happened. He tells her that she's got it all wrong and that she owes Stephen an apology. The blade-wielding twins come out of the theater, waving their knives in the air in the crowd's general direction. Detective Woods tells them to put their knives down. Peaches yells from the crowd that she hopes they like jail because that's where they're going for the rest of their lives. The girls slowly turn towards one another and proceed to stab each other in the stomach to death. Yes, yes, I love the scene. <laughs> we're going to have to reenact this because we're the twins. Oh, okay. All right. I'll you work know. on my star quality. Yeah, I'll work on transportation because you're kind of far away. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> the newscaster finds Stephen in the crowd and asks if he's still a fan of Deborah, to which he replies that of course he isn't. Because this wasn't filmmaking, this was a crime scene, and they were all duped. The newscaster asked him if he would uh, see if he would go see a movie about this if there uh -huh. was one. Stephen said he would not because if someone made a movie about this, then that means that Debbie would still be alive. Everyone <laughs> nervously turns towards Debbie's body to make sure that she's dead. Judy goes up to him and grabs his hand. He leaves with Judy and his mom, taking one last good look at Debbie to make sure that she is dead. Her dead eyes hang wide open and the movie ends. And then the posters of all of Deb's short films are shown during the end credits, which are all awesome and fun. Yes, yes. <laughs> And that concludes All About Evil. Yay. Tammy, what did you think? 
I, when I first started, I was like, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. And I didn't want to rate it until I talked to you about it, even though towards the end I knew that I liked it. But like I said, I feel like to me this was like a Jonathan Waters movie. So if you like that, then you might like this. But if that's not your sense of humor, um, you know, or if you don't like that kind of just slightly off center pacing and how maybe the story doesn't always, it, I don't know how to, how to explain those movies. If you've seen one, you know what I'm talking about. And to yeah. me, this is just, that's what I would compare it to. And I do love Jonathan Waters movies. So I think that, you know, that just helps. And it, it had so many things already going for it when I started it. Like, you know, I said that I liked Natasha Leone, And once I realized what, like, maybe, like, the feel of the movie was, I'm like, I think I might actually like this. It's not something that I would have ever probably watched on my own. But yeah. I'm glad that you had me watch it. It's, <laughs> I mean, it genuinely made me laugh. It made me happy. Uh, so I can appreciate that, you know? Yay. So, yeah. Good. What would you rate it out of 10? Uh, I, I got to rate it on like what kind of movie it is. <laughs> like, is it, exactly. what would you say like horror comedy? But I mean, it still had good. And you know what? Like, I use the term comedy loosely because not everyone would find this funny, but I found it hilarious. But like I said, this is this is my kind of humor, that dry, sarcastic wit. So uh I know it's not going to be for everybody, but as far as like a movie of this kind, I think I would give it an eight out of a ten out of ten. It has everything going for it. And still, you could tell that whoever made it had a love for the genre because they he, she, they, do you say they, took such, uh, she took such care with the kills. And I think that shows. Yeah. Um, as someone who, you know, is not only extremely campy, because I think drag queens are just by nature campy, but um, was able to inject a humor that I really appreciated, but really good kills. Like, as as low budget as a lot of this movie looked, the kills didn't look that way. They looked really great. So. Yeah. Nice. Yay. Yeah. I'm glad that you didn't hate it. That no, you even I didn't like it. it. <laughs> I just wasn't sure what I was in for at first. I'm like, what? What? Yeah. Is, what is going on? But I quickly warmed up to it. So yeah. good. Oh, I love stuff like this. So I said that I wish I could have watched this and just enjoyed it without having to write down like detailed notes because there was a lot of me like you know rewinding and making sure I didn't miss something and. Yep. Figuring out how to phrase things before I move on. Um, but I'm definitely going to watch this again in the future um, for funsies. And I'm excited for that. Um, and I really want to watch all of. It's your first watch? It is, is yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. It's something that I've been wanting to watch for a while, ever since I found out that it existed. Um, and so I was, I used this podcast as a way to <laughs> finally check that off. Yeah. Yeah. So very exciting for me. Um, but I knew like what I was getting myself into, um, because I've been wanting to watch it. But um, now I really want to watch all of Joshua's slash Peach's short stories as well. He has a lot of, like, short films. I think this is only full-length film. Oh. Um, yeah. And this has a lot of my favorite things that I'm looking for when I'm watching, you know, like, indie horror endeavors. So this is clearly, you know, kind of made for me. Yeah. But I love how fun it is. 
And I love the cast um, and the crew and the film itself. They all really like own what this is. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that really helped make it successful, you know, so and not just like a underground, you know, crappy movie or something. <laughs> One thing about Natasha Leone, and I think this is old enough that this is kind of before she seemed to have like a renaissance of her career as of late. But there was a time about like this time where you were seeing her in things like, but I'm a cheerleader and just like um, these real low indie, low budget movies. But one thing about her, she always acts the heck out of anything that she was in. And I think that's what's contributed to her longevity, you know? And I mean, I think she's like actually a star these days, you know, much more mainstream than she ever was before. But this was still kind of in that period where this is the kind of movies that she was making i just have always thought she's just like a super cool chick you know yeah me too yeah yep love her all right well now that we're done with our ratings i did have a little bit of trivia for you um so that elvira poster that's in steven's room it's a moon moon bathing poster i don't know what that means i don't know if that's a movie that she was in but that's what it was referred to. I think trivia. it's like sunbathing, but it's moonbathing. Okay. So it's not. Like, like that's what Elvira wouldn't go out in the sun. She doesn't want to get a tan. So she goes out Okay. Because they, they, like, capitalized it in the trivia. So I was like, is that a movie or what? But, no, it's just like, you're right. It's just something that people do. Um, so that's just what she happened to be doing in that poster, apparently. <laughs> I was like, what? I don't know about that movie. Um <laughs> Natasha Leone was influenced by many Hollywood actresses for Deborah Tenise's complex character. These included Mae West, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and Clara Bow. Um, and according to the director, with some Tim Curry thrown in. I can totally <laughs> see all of that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, the title of this movie is taken from the classic uh, Betty Davis film All About Eve from 1950. That I did figure out. But yes. it's just another play on the names like they did throughout the whole movie. Exactly. That was cute. It was really cute. Um, Darren Stein um, brought this script to Thomas Decker, who played Stephen, and he said that it had everything in it that interested him. Um, and I think I had said earlier, Darren Stein um, was like one of the main producers of this. He is the one who wrote and directed Jawbreaker. Um, and then also All About Evil was re-released on Blu-ray through Severn Films about a year ago. So there are actually some cool interviews and stuff that came out around that time. Um, and that's when it got put on Shutter and everything, too. So I'm really glad that it got re-released so that we could see it on Shutter Because oh, yeah. I didn't know where the heck to watch it before that. <laughs> All right. So that's all of the trivia I had, just a couple of things. So now we can get into our monstrous mention. All right. I'm really self-indulging tonight um, because tonight's monstrous mention is Peaches Christ. It's your show. You can do whatever the heck you want. Yay. I figured <laughs> I figured perfect opportunity no, to finally talk about a drag queen. I don't think I've brought up any drag queens yet, which 
I will bring up many (laughs) different points. Um, But Peaches has become a lot more famous in recent years because of her presence on Shudder and in Dragula. But she's been around and successful for a long time, especially in the San Francisco drag scene. Uh, Peaches actually has a show with Mink Soul tonight, like a live show, um, having to do with their over two decades long friendship and underground filming, um, drag, um, and the show's taking place in Washington, D.C. Obviously, you're not going to be able to go get tickets right now or anything, but I thought that that was funny that, um. I would give, I would go to that in a second. Right. Ah. They're sharing stories and film clips and singing live. And she has other events coming up as well. Um, so you'll want to go and check those out on her website, which is peacheschrist.com. You can also buy Peaches movies, uh, like her short films on her website, uh, slash Patreon. And Peaches and Michael Verratti, who's another horror writer, director, and producer, have a really awesome podcast called Midnight Mass, where they cover cult movies. And they get the best, most fitting oh. guests for each episode. I love it so much. It's you listen really, to it? Yes, I listen yeah. to it regularly. I think you would really like it. Like, yeah. you would actually, you would know a lot more of the people in the movies that they cover than I do, because you guys are, like, around the same age. Um, but because of that podcast, I'm constantly adding stuff to my watch list. <laughs> like, oh, I, I will like, have to check that out for sure. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm an amateur. I need to watch all of these um, to become an actual cinephile. So, and they, of course, cover movies that I do love, too. And I'm always excited when I see that they're covering something that I love. And I'm like, yay, I love this movie. Um, But, yeah, it's a really good podcast, and it's well-produced, too. Um, Let's see. And, of course, I'll be adding links for all of Peach's projects and and her website and, you know, all of her socials in our show notes, which are plentiful and worth your time. Peaches has been doing drag since 1996 and has a production company called Backlash Production Company and hosts um, a Midnight Mass movie series, which began in 1998. And Peaches also helps produce and run Terror Vault in San Francisco, which is a fully theatrical, immersive haunted show. Oh, my gosh. That would be so fun. I know. It sounds super awesome. There's previews and stuff for it on the website. And it looks just really, really cool. Um, and it has a complete storyline combining elements of theater, 4D effects, and haunted mazes. And here I put Grinnell, you know, this is Joshua Grinnell, uh, studied film at Penn State University, where his senior thesis film, Jizz Mopper, a love story about a janitor at an adult video store, won the audience award at the annual Penn State Student Film Festival. Oh, <laughs> I love her. Grinnell developed the Peaches Christ character during the production of this film. Peaches Christ, we salute you. You badass exhibitionist, you. Yes, we do. Yes, <laughs> yes we we're do. in the church of Peaches yeah. Christ right now. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. Tammy, you want to lead us out? Sure. So that's going to do it for this episode of Horror Through Her Eyes. Next time, we will be reviewing Death Proof from 2007, which is actually... Dave Dr. Shock Becker's pick as he will be joining us on our next episode. That is not streaming for free anywhere, unfortunately, but you can run it for $3.99 on Amazon Prime, 
iTunes, Apple TV, and Google Play. Please rate, review, rate, review the podcast anywhere podcasts are found. And don't forget, we're having that little, like, what is it, contest, uh, thank you, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <drawing. laughs> uh, just to get some reviews, just to, like, help get our name out there. Uh, Joe, help a couple of murderous twin sisters out. Dudes, please. <laughs> Uh, join our Horror Through Her Eyes Facebook group page. Email us at horrorthroughhereyes at yahoo.com. Follow us on Instagram and threads at Horror Through Her Eyes Pod with an underscore between each word. Follow us on TikTok at Horror Through Her Eyes Pod. Follow us on Letterboxd at Horror Her Eyes. And follow our YouTube channel at Horror Through Her Eyes Pod. Yes, please follow that. I work so hard on those. As we bid you farewell, we hope you enjoyed your time with us on Horror Through Her Eyes. It's been a blast diving into the depths of dread. That's my star quality, the depths <laughs> of dread with you. It really and, is. And <laughs> until next time, remember to live deliciously. That's your actual star quality. Yes, right? Deliciously. <laughs> deliciously. <laughs> She keeps them always shando in a pretty cabinet. Let them eat cakes, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. A building a remedy for Chris Job and Kennedy. At any time, an imitation you can't take. Caviar and cigarettes, well-versed in etiquette, extraordinarily nice. She's a killer, queen, gunfight, and genetine. Guaranteed to blow your mind. Recommended at the price, insatiable.